When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A new way for Joe Biden to make history. The lead starts right now. President Biden says he's made one decision when it comes to naming that replacement for retiring Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. Then, a warning from the Pentagon, Russia adding even more forces near its border with Ukraine as President Biden tries to ease tensions by phone. And book removal outrage. A Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel about the Holocaust is yanked from some Tennessee classrooms. Many are questioning why. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today in our politics lead and that major announcement from President Biden about who will succeed Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer when Breyer retires at the end of this term. The person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience, and integrity. And that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. Now, Biden says he has not yet made a decision on just who that person will be, but he's going to invite senators from both parties to hear their opinions, their points of view. Biden says he expects to choose a nominee before the end of February. As CNN's MJ Lee reports, some have been lobbying the president on just who that nominee should be since back in February 2021. This is sort of a bittersweet day for me. Justice Breyer and I go back a long way. A momentous day for the Joe Biden presidency. I'm here today to express the nation's gratitude to Justice Stephen Breyer for his remarkable career of public service and his clear-eyed commitment to making our country's laws work for its people. Justice Stephen Breyer officially announcing his decision to retire from the Supreme Court, describing American democracy as an experiment, one that is now in the hands of future generations. It's an experiment that's still going on. And I'll tell you something. You know who will see whether that experiment works? It's you, my friend. It's you, Mr. High School student. It's you, Mr. College student. It's you, Mr. Law School students. It's us, but it's you. It's that next generation and the one after that. My grandchildren and their children. That decision handing President Biden his first opportunity to name a justice to the country's highest court. Choosing someone to sit in the Supreme Court, I believe, is one of the most serious constitutional responsibility a president has. Our process is going to be rigorous. I will select a nominee worthy of Justice Breyer's legacy of excellence and decency. President publicly confirming that he will uphold a major promise he made during the 2020 campaign. I've made no decision except one. The person I will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience, and integrity. And that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. It's long overdue in my view. The pressure to choose a black woman going back months 
Congressman Jim Clyburn urging the White House to consider a judge hailing from South Carolina, a state key to Biden winning the 2020 primary. The fact of the matter is, uh, I have been discussing Michelle Childs uh, with the president and his people now uh, for, uh, I guess, uh, at least 13 months. Biden also sharing an informal deadline, the end of February, for choosing his nominee. After that, Senate Democrats ready to move fast. In the Senate, we want to be deliberate. We want to move quickly. We want to get this done as soon as possible. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell quickly calling on Biden to govern from the middle, saying in a statement, the president must not outsource this important decision to the radical left. Now, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki just responded to that statement from Mitch McConnell, uh, saying that we've not even put out a single name. We don't have an official list, so it might be too early for Republicans to be talking about radical anything. Uh, She also reiterated that President Biden does want to consult with members of both parties, that he would like to work with Republicans in good faith. Jake, we're about to see in the coming weeks how much room there is in this process for bipartisanship. Jake. All right, MJ Lee, thanks so much. Let's discuss with my panel. Joan, let me start with you. You have discussed Justice Breyer as someone who worked to bridge the conservative liberal divide, quote, more than most of his colleagues. Explain what the Supreme Court is going to lose with Breyer leaving. Uh, Thanks, Jake. Yeah, he he will leave a real hole in the fabric of the court just because of his outlook. You know, he had uh, worked with Teddy Kennedy in the legislative branch uh, with the Senate Judiciary Committee, in fact, back in the 70s. And he still saw things in terms of building consensus. He used to say he considered a dissent a failure, that if he couldn't find a middle ground, uh, he was unhappy with it. Now, of course, you know, on this kind of polarized court, more often than not, he was dissenting, but he worked hard to try to get, uh, first of all, the Chief Justice, John Roberts, to uh, work with him for some sort of consensus. And he had a real partner in Elena Kagan, still has a partner in Elena Kagan, who's another liberal, but uh, someone who takes a more strategic, tactical approach toward finding some middle ground. Now, first of all, the liberals, of course, have a weak hand with only three justices. So it's it's a it's a way to prevail in, in some cases. But I have to say that the court will uh, not be the same with him and uh, it will alter the approaches of the others, most notably the chief, who's always trying to find some sort of middle ground and preserve the integrity of the court and Justice Elena Kagan. And the question will be, will Justice Kagan become more of a dissenter in the vein of Sonia Sotomayor or will she try to find new partners, perhaps in the new mm-hmm. newest justice, Jake? Andrew, the conservative Wall Street Journal editorial board has been making the argument that even though the balance of power is not going to change, a left-leaning justice is going to be replaced by another left-leaning justice in all likelihood. The Supreme Court, they argue, is losing a pragmatic liberal. uh, And the Wall Street Journal editorial board goes on to say, quote, the president would be wise to pick a liberal in the mold of Justices Breyer or Elena Kagan rather than Sonia Sotomayor, who seems more interested in fiery dissents than persuading colleagues and, and shaping the law. Now, you clerked for both Justices Breyer and Kagan. What do you think of that analysis? You know, I think it's important, Jake, to recognize that the president has an opportunity to nominate a justice that has to rise and meet the moment that we're in. And I think Joan is right to say that when, the justice, when Justice Breyer is gone, there'll be a hole in the court. But I think there's already a hole on the court because that middle ground that might have existed years ago, we're seeing already is disappearing or gone. 
the court, even in just the past year or two, even in just the past few months, has shown that it's a court that is trying to run, not walk, towards really substantially rewriting and overhauling aspects of our constitutional law that have been standing for decades. So I think that uh, a justice that's coming on the bench now is a justice that is going to be dissenting and that is going to be joining two uh, women who are really quite good at dissenting, Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor, who know how to write dissents that make it clear to the public just what it is that's happening at the court, at their court, at our court. And I think that, um, that, that that's important, that the ability to have that clarity and that voice and that sort of dissenting voice when the fact of the matter is this new justice will not be changing the balance of power on the court. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be able to avoid dissenting. And so I think it's really important to have someone who is able to join Sotomayor and Kagan mm -hmm. uh, in that dissenting voice and to speak with the clarity and the power that they both have. Nia, obviously, uh, when we've seen the, the shortlist floated out there, um, obviously, President Biden is looking at eminently qualified uh, judges uh, and, and the like. Um, and obviously, also, he has said he wants to nominate a black woman. There's never been a black woman on the Supreme Court. And, and the fact that he wants the next justice to be a black woman is already causing uh, the usual responses from the usual suspects. Take a listen. I'm wondering the kind of justice that he would nominate. Now, again, I'm sure it will be, as Guy said, a black woman. You know, he's got a dedication to that. We saw how well that worked out with Kamala Harris. But here's to hoping that he has a better choice in mind for this position. I mean, what kind of a qualification is that, being a black woman? I mean, is this our standards now in terms of the highest court in the land? I mean, it is 2022 and still we're hearing this kind of bilge. Yeah, and this is a preview of what's to come from this confirmation hearing from sort of the conservative uh, chattering class as well. This is going to be an ugly fight. There's going to be some racist uh, dog whistling. There's going to be some people who use bullhorns, as we saw uh, in some of those clips uh, there. I, I think we see from Mitch McConnell, there's going to be an attempt to paint this woman uh, as a radical leftist, as so far outside of the American uh, mainstream that they uh, won't fit into to the court. Uh, and in some ways, that'll be easier to do with a black woman who oftentimes are painted as sort of other uh, and outside of the American uh, mainstream. And I, I think what Democrats should be uh, happy about is that Biden has been successful at shepherding a whole slate of very diverse uh, judges uh, through the Senate process out of the judges that he's appointed so far, uh, something like 70 percent are people of color, 75 percent are women. So they know this process. And some of the folks on this list have already gotten support from people in the Senate, already gotten bipartisan support in the Senate as well. But this fight is going to be ugly. There are going to be sort of a culture mm -hmm. war that we're going to see play out uh, in the coming uh, weeks and months around this nominee. And that is sad and unfortunate as Biden is about to make history and likely make this nomination probably uh, during uh, Black History Month. And we should note, uh, Joan, uh, in the history of the U.S. Supreme Court, 230 years, there have been 115 justices on the bench. Uh, only seven of them have been minorities or women. Only seven. That's just about 6% of all Supreme Court justices. And yet somehow, uh, Joan, we, uh, a lot of people out there don't think uh, about appointing white men the same way that we might be talking about appointing uh, non-white men. Yeah, it is not a radical idea to say that 
after 233 years that we need to have uh, a more diversity on the court and for the very first time uh, an African-American woman. And the, the thing is, the credentials of even the shortlists that have been circulated, uh, everybody is like superior. <laughs> there's not, it's not like uh, there's a reach in any way. You know, I was, uh, I, as you know, Jake, have written a lot about uh, the first woman justice, Sandra Day O'Connor in 1981, when uh, Ronald Reagan made that vow and then carried through with it. There just weren't that many women uh, in on courts. In fact, Sandra Day O'Connor came from a middle-level court in Arizona. So it, it, we're way past that now because every single person on that list that's before Joe Biden right now is just, as I said, has, has sterling credentials. And Andrew, final thought as somebody who clerked for Justice Breyer on, on how, he, how he's handled his exit uh, and his announcement of his retirement. You know, I imagine for him it might feel bittersweet for exactly the reasons we were talking about before. You know, he's someone who was always looking to um, to build that bridge, and he's leaving the court at a time when it's as stark as ever that that, that middle space is is vanishing, if not gone. Uh, and so I, I, I think that he probably will, will look back on the long arc of his career uh, and feel proud and feel justifiably proud of the service he did uh, to the court and to the country. But there's no doubt that he's leaving at a moment when the court is... Um, is, is taking a hard and aggressive turn to the right, and one that I can't imagine he feels happy about, uh, and where that middle space that he once hoped for is, is, is no longer there. Uh, and I think that that's got to be something that's on his mind as he's leaving the court. Nia Malika, Joan, Andrew, thanks to all of you. Appreciate it. Hmm, this does not really look like quarantine. Sarah Palin dining out again just days after she tested positive for COVID. Then An important report card from Biden voters, how pandemic, exhaustion, and economic anxiety are changing the way they see his presidency. Stay with us. In our health lead today, the United States appears to be easing out of COVID crisis mode. New daily COVID infections are dropping in the states shown here in green, but the U.S. is not completely out of the woods. Tragically, deaths are still spiking at an average of 2,300 Americans lost every day to COVID. That's more than double the daily totals from two months ago. As CNN's Alexandra Field reports for us now, it's not just infections and deaths that are diverging. So are Americans' attitudes on how to put this pandemic behind us. I am more optimistic about the pandemic today than I have been since It was declared a pandemic nearly two years ago. Public health experts can't predict if or when the next COVID surge might come, but many are increasingly certain this one is nearly behind us. In another few weeks, the Omicron flash flood, not a wave, but a flash flood, will have largely passed. Clear signs of a turnaround across the country. Declines in the number of new COVID cases in 33 states compared to last week. Despite that progress, some states haven't reached their Omicron peak yet. In Montana, there's an onslaught of new cases. They're up more than 50% in just the last week. When you have over 2,000 deaths, 150,000 hospitalizations, and you have people who are now getting infected to the tune of somewhere around 700,000 a day, we're not there yet. Pfizer and Moderna are both working on Omicron-specific vaccines. It isn't clear that they'll be needed, but COVID has brought surprises before. I think hopefully we'll get into spring and into summer and have a period of stability, but we have to be prepared. And as Moderna and leaders in this field, we're committed to being prepared to protect Americans and people around the world with that new vaccine if we need it for the fall. 
vaccine manufacturers and public health experts are keeping close tabs on an Omicron subvariant. It isn't considered at this point cause for alarm. Most Americans are eager to put Omicron behind them and still divided over how to. And by your vote, show the politics that of masking SB... taking center stage in Florida, where Democrats walked out on a confirmation hearing for the Republican governor's pick for Surgeon General. You know, I think that it's important to be guided by science and data. And so it was sort of interesting to hear uh, the Surgeon General say that he's being guided by science, um, but then at the same time says that mask wearing is an extreme measure. In New York, Sarah Palin rejecting the CDC's isolation guidelines. Two days after testing positive for COVID, she's spotted eating outdoors at a restaurant. Palin reportedly also ate inside the same restaurant while unvaccinated, a violation of city rules, two days before she tested positive. And Jake, a big issue on the mind of a lot of parents across the country, whether their kids will have to keep wearing masks in schools, if so, for how much longer? The head of one of the largest districts in the nation outside of D.C. in Maryland now says she doesn't see an end to mask requirements coming anytime soon. She says there's no magic number when it comes to vaccinations that would put an end to remediation efforts. It is something schools everywhere are wrestling with in all different ways. Jake? Alexander Field, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss, CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, you heard former CDC Director uh, Dr. Tom Frieden say he's the most optimistic he's been since the pandemic started. Do you share his optimism or, or is it still too early to say uh, that we're almost out of the woods? Well, I think there's, there's a lot of positive indicators here. And I think uh, there's a lot of uh, people who share this, this optimism. If you just look at the numbers, you know, things are uh, cases at least coming down, hospitalizations starting to come down, a smaller percentage, but still coming down. Deaths are still going up in this country, but we recognize that that is also a lagging indicator. But, you know, the, the thing, Jake, is that if you start to look at where we are as a country, uh, besides the cases, Testing now is something that is being taken more seriously, masks getting out there, but also this, these antivirals that we talked about on your program a couple of weeks ago, Paxlovid, for example, there's not enough of it right now, but there'll be tens of millions of doses that'll arrive sometime over the next few months. That appears to be a very effective medication, not just against this particular variant, but any variant of, of this uh, coronavirus. So I think, you know, we, we, are, we see the trends heading in the right direction and there's lots of things in place to potentially buffer what may be some resurgences over the next several months. The Biden administration is starting to discuss the new normal. Dr. Fauci says there's still a way to go, didn't put an exact metric on it. Uh, is there a magic number? Is there some sort of metric that would, that would be an acceptable way for us to go about our lives? You know, it's interesting, Jake. I remember having several conversations with Dr. Fauci about this pre-Delta, pre-Delta variant. And, you know, he threw out a number, I remember at that time, that when we get below fewer than 10,000 cases per day, uh, that would be a, a maybe a rough number of, of getting to endemic. And, and the way that he was sort of calculating that is saying, look, how likely are you to come in contact with somebody who has COVID and you're breathing in that person's air? And when he got below 10,000, he said, you know, the, the chances were very, very low. Omicron, much more contagious. So I think we'd probably accept a higher number. But I think these metrics are really hard to, to lean into because, you know, we're not testing enough. We still don't know exactly how much this is spreading. I think it really does come down to two basic things. One is this virus is here to stay. There are remnants of the 1918 flu virus that still circulate more than 100 years later. This is a virus that is now going to be a part of what we humans deal with. 
But I think when we see it not having the impact that it's clearly having now in terms of hospitalizations in particular, I think that may be the point when we say it's endemic. It's not interfering with the ability for society to function and care for patients in hospitals like we typically do. We're not there yet. And that big peak that's coming down, I mean, optimistic again that it's coming down, but we still got a long ways to go. I mean, you know, 150,000 extra people in the hospital, 2,200 people dying every day, coming down, but still there's going to be a long downward slope there. It would all be so different if just the tens of millions of Americans who refuse to get vaccinated and or refuse to get their kids vaccinated would just behave otherwise. Uh, then we, we wouldn't be having this segment right now. Uh, Sanjay, there's a new study from the UK showing 65% of individuals in that country who tested positive for Omicron also had a confirmed previous COVID infection. Is this a sign that the COVID antibodies one develops from infection, not from the vaccine, but from infection, might not actually last very long or be as strong as as people hope they would be? Yes, I, I think that the idea of what is, how long does natural immunity really last is a question that you know uh, these these studies sort of answer, at least when it comes to this particular virus. Uh, natural immunity can last a long time for other viruses. If you get infected with measles, you may have lifelong immunity as a result of that. Not so uh, with with COVID. Uh, We've seen that over and over again. But I also think it's important to point out, Jake, we have talked a lot about antibodies over the last couple of years, understandably. People want to measure these, get some idea of their immunity. But antibodies are kind of like the the lights on your security system. An intruder comes to your property, lights go on. When the intruder's gone, you want the lights to go off but be able to come on quickly again if an intruder comes. So it's not necessarily how many antibodies you have at any given time. It's how quickly those antibodies can ramp up again in response to another exposure. And I think it's a really important point. Even if antibodies wane in people, um, there may still be a lot of immunity that they have because they can recreate that army of antibodies very quickly. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Vladimir Putin keeps flexing his military muscle. New reporting from the Pentagon about changes along the Ukrainian border. Stay with us. We have some breaking news in our world lead. The Pentagon warning that Russia has increased, increased the number of combat forces near Russia's Ukrainian border within the last 24 hours. This as President Biden just wrapped up a phone call with his Ukrainian counterpart, President Volodymyr Zelensky, according to Zelensky's office. Joining us now to discuss CNN's Nick Robertson, who's live in Moscow, Russia. Sam Kiley, live for us in Kiev, Ukraine. And Sam, President Zelensky just tweeted about the phone call. What does he have to say? So he's just, uh, just in the last few seconds, I think, uh, Jake, he's uh, put out a, a statement saying, we had a long phone conversation with POTUS, discussed recent diplomatic efforts on de-escalation and agreed on joint actions for the future. Thank President Biden for the ongoing military assistance Possible possibilities for financial support to Ukraine were also discussed. So a fairly bland response. We had been expecting uh, perhaps a little bit more detail on uh, something we were sort of led to believe was going to be discussed, which was a difference in tone and approach in terms of the US and other allied rhetoric when it came to uh, Ukraine. That, and, and that specifically uh, over the issue of whether or not an attack was imminent on Russia, which is the view of the United States and the United Kingdom, or uh, the Ukrainian view, which is they don't believe it is imminent, it is under threat, uh, and they're trying to c- be calming their population, Jake. Uh, but this uh, readout is clearly uh, thanking the United States uh, so far, at any rate, what they've explained, but, but what they were saying, 
because of the very large amount of military aid which is currently pouring in to the country almost daily, Jake. There are aircraft landing uh, with many, uh, many uh, tens of tons every day and Nick uh, Ra- of, of uh, lethal equipment, crucially. And, and Nick Robertson, the Pentagon uh, says Russia is building up its forces at the border. Russia continues to say they're not planning to invade Ukraine. So what is their explanation for the buildup? Yeah, Jake, they're sticking to that same old explanation that this is all military training exercises. These aircraft they brought in, helicopters, tanks, uh, mobile artillery pieces, paratroopers, uh, you know, supplies for for all these men and material, particularly still flooding into Belarus. Those uh, military exercises are not supposed to get get underway. And remembering they're pretty close to Kiev, capital there of Ukraine. They're not supposed to get underway until really at the end of this month and run through next month. So uh, this is this is how uh, the, the Kremlin is playing it. It's, uh, you know, this disposition of forces, huge as it is, they would have us believe, even though it's in the south and the east and the, and the north of Ukraine, three sides, uh, they want us to understand this is only for training. And Sam, the Ukrainian foreign minister also warned about a growing Russian presence along the border. But notably, he said that Ukraine does not think the invasion is Moscow's plan A. Explain. Well, he uh, very interesting that, you know, this is the uh, landscape uh, back in 2014, where this whole notion of hybrid warfare was first uh, ignited and brought to life in physical form with uh, unacknowledged military forces from Russia, known as the little green men, quite often uh, cyber attacks, lots of covert operations, large scale deniable operations conducted by the Russians in that original seizure of Crimea and the east of the country. Uh, in support of Russian-speaking rebels in that part of the world. So he's really talking in terms of the first phase. He's saying that he expects to see cyber attacks, uh, efforts made to undermine the political process here, uh, perhaps uh, agents provocateurs, fifth columnists uh, participating in political protests here, basically threatening the stability of the government, perhaps then providing an excuse for some kind of an intervention, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley in Kiev, Ukraine, Nick Robertson in Moscow, Russia. Thanks to both of you. Coming up, we're going to talk to the Biden voters living there in Allentown. Was the restlessness handed down? And some tell CNN it's getting very hard to stay Biden cheerleaders. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the key to Democrats' success in the midterms may be making inroads with working class voters who support President Biden historically has proudly touted. But CNN's new poll of polls has Biden's overall job approval rating at 42 percent. And that includes a new Monmouth survey that says only 30 percent of Americans think that President Biden is very concerned with the economic well-being of average Americans. CNN's Jeff Zeleny went to Allentown, Pennsylvania, not far from Biden's hometown of Scranton, and spoke to some of those frustrated working-class voters. Inflation is frustrating. Filling your tank is expensive. Everything's expensive. Sally Bissy feels the pain, yet she hardly believes President Biden deserves all the blame. I think he's done as good a job as anybody really could have done. And I don't care who would have been in his, his position no Republican would have liked him. It's just, we're just like that now. Here in Pennsylvania, where Biden is visiting Friday as part of his new pledge to break free from the White House bubble. I'm be out of this place more often. Exhaustion over the pandemic runs deep, including the economy. 
Conversations about how Biden is doing are filled with nuance, bookended by inflation at a four-decade high and today's GDP report showing the biggest economic growth since 1984. Going forward, Esther Lee wants the president to show more fight. He's kind of a soft-spoken, uh, you know, easygoing guy. Uh, and that has his attributes, but uh, you know, I'd like to see him press, press forward a little more. A little more fire? Yeah. <laughs> I've got fire, and uh, I, I think he should just come forward, move forward on it. What's he got to lose? Lee is a longtime leader of the NAACP in Bethlehem. She doesn't hold Biden responsible for election reform falling short, but believes he should sharpen his approach for today's reality. I hear him talk about what he used to do, what he was able to do across the aisle. That no longer exists. That's out. This is a different world. As Biden kicks off his second year, he wants people here to feel the accomplishments of his first, like new roads and bridges, thanks to the infrastructure law. Congresswoman Susan Wild, who represents the 7th District here, is busy touting that landmark infrastructure achievement. But she knows the mood of many voters is still sour. The fact of the matter is, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. People have seen increases in their wages, but we know that those increases in wages have not kept up with a higher price of goods. Facing her own midterm election battle, she believes her fellow Democrats should turn to a scaled-back version of Biden's economic agenda, like lowering prescription drug costs. Let's not just keep knocking our heads against the wall and, you know, trying to pass a massive bill if what we can get done are smaller bills that will really make a difference in people's lives. Don Cunningham runs the Lehigh Valley Economic Development Corporation. He said most business leaders, whether or not they agreed with all of Biden's policies, saw him as a fresh start. But he believes what hasn't been accomplished often overshadows what has there's not enough understanding of what's trying to be done. And that will be a challenge for the Democrats coming up in 2022, uh, because you might know a name like Build Back Better, but people don't know all of what's in it. They're not even discussing it. And that is exactly why President Biden coming here to Pennsylvania tomorrow, Jake, going to Pittsburgh to make the case about something he already has done, the infrastructure law and the benefits for this state. The White House believes that is the key to at least some level of success this year, not talking about what they have not yet done. All right, Jeff Zeleny in Allentown, thanks so much. A Pulitzer Prize winning graphic novel about the Holocaust has been removed from some classes reading lists and many are questioning the reason why. Stay with us. In our national lead, a school board in Tennessee has yanked the Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel Mouse from its reading list for 8th graders. The book is a powerful and award-winning account of the author's father's experiences, his real experiences, with the horrors of the Holocaust. It creatively depicts Jews as mice and Nazis as cats. The McMinn County, Tennessee Board of Education, however, voted unanimously to remove the novel from its eighth grade curriculum over, quote, rough, objectionable language, the use of the word damn, and over a drawing of a a nude woman, which author and cartoonist Art Spiegelman says is a tiny image of his mother's suicide. He spoke with CNN about this decision earlier today. Today is Holocaust Remembrance Day, International Mm -hmm. Holocaust Remembrance Day, which adds to the poignancy, irony, and madness of this to some degree, because it's not, um, one would think that the word remembrance is important. 
Let's talk about this and much more having to do with Holocaust remembrance with, remembrance with Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker, one of the four hostages held in his congregation in Colleyville, Texas, just over a week ago. Rabbi, thanks so much uh, for joining us. I, I do want to talk about how you and your congregation are doing in the wake of that terrifying standoff. But I do want to ask about your reaction to the removal of this very powerful book about the Holocaust by this Tennessee school district from its curriculum for eighth graders uh, on this week of Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, It's an incredible volume, and I had a chance to hear Art Spiegelman speak uh, when I was at the University of Michigan. Uh, He's incredible. The work is incredible. There's definitely conversation about, you know, what is appropriate for what age level and maturity level, but the idea that you would ban an incredible work like Mouse, which not only depicts his father's experience during the Holocaust, but also uh, gives his account of living with a Holocaust survivor. Uh, it's it's such a powerful volume, and I it, it's shocking. It's 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 really really shocking that this book would be singled out. Yeah, uh, especially over yeah. things like language, when the the content is so valuable. Yeah, I mean to be to be uh, precise, it's not a ban per se, but it was on the curriculum, and then it was removed from the curriculum. Um, Tennessee Democratic Congressman uh, Steve Cohen, uh, Tennessee's first Jewish congressman, released. A statement on the book's removal, quote, the unanimous decision of the McMinn County School Board to ban the graphic novel Mouse from its curriculum is another unfortunate and embarrassing example of closed-mindedness. It's also censorship and typical of a trend we're seeing around the country of right-wing politicians attempting to shield themselves from the painful truths of history. Again, it hasn't been banned, but it has been removed from the curriculum. Do you agree with Congressman Cohen? Do you see this in the context of moves that we've seen on the local level to remove unpleasant truths, not just the Holocaust in this instance, but slavery and others, uh, the, you know, the treatment of indigenous populations in the U.S., etc., from education in this country? Uh, the way that I've talked about it with my congregation is just that acknowledgement that we have to be honest about our history. We have to acknowledge that in the Jewish community, if you go back into the history, we had people, Jews, rabbis, who were supportive of slavery. And we had Jews and rabbis who were opposed to slavery. And fortunately, right, we've come out where we are. uh, And the Jewish community has been incredible advocates for others in many respects. And I think it's really, really important for us to uh, be able to share and talk about how anti-Semitism is built upon lies and untruths. And we need to be able to share that truth. And we need to be able to share the reality of all of our histories. Agreed. Agreed. You and and three other members of your congregation in Colleyville, Texas, were held hostage and endured a grueling 11-hour standoff a couple weekends ago, just 12 days ago. How are you doing? How, how is your congregation doing? Uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit up and down, uh, as you might imagine. Everyone is going through their own process. Uh, the congregation is, like, this is ongoing for us. Uh, repairs do take time. 
the congregation is under construction. And my understanding is that we, right during the pandemic, the supply chain issues, uh, those are a reality for us. And incredibly, we've been able to rely on the generosity of, of others uh, so that we can uh, we can pray together. Uh, we can have office space. It's 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 been wonderful. But it's uh, it's it's like just yesterday. I needed to take some time off because I needed time for myself. I needed m- for my mental health and well being, and I got a lot of support in order to do so. Uh, and so, for each of us, it's it's day to day. Trauma is a real, real thing, but it's good that you're aware of it and dealing with it. Rabbi Citron Walker, thank you so much. We'll have you back again. It's always good to see you, and I hope you have a meaningful uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Day today. Thank you for the opportunity. Doctors say students need to be in school, in person, but across the country, classrooms are returning to virtual learning. The U.S. Surgeon General will join me live next to discuss what can be done to keep kids in the classroom safely. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Stormy on the Stand. Porn star Stormy Daniels testifies against her former lawyer, Michael Avenatti, claiming he stole money from her. Avenatti cross-examining Daniels himself, even. Plus, quick pick. President Biden promising his Supreme Court pick in the next few weeks with Democrats pushing for a speedy confirmation process. A member of the Senate Judiciary Committee will join us live to discuss and Leading this hour, universal solution. While public health experts push for COVID booster shots, behind the scenes, scientists are working to create a universal vaccine against COVID to protect against any possible variant. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta went inside one of the labs working on this science to see how close it all is to reality. Right now, it's a race. There's gonna be variants uh, for a long time. The virus against the vaccines and the boosters, and possibly more boosters. The company is forging ahead with an Omicron-specific vaccine. But scientists have been working on what could be a better solution. The urgent need of a universal coronavirus vaccine. It's just what it sounds like. A vaccine that covers the circulating virus, yes, but also future variants we haven't even seen yet, and potentially other types of coronaviruses as well. That means not only targeting SARS-like viruses, but then targeting MERS-like viruses, or then also targeting cold viruses. Kevin Saunders is the director of research here at the Duke Human Vaccine Institute, one of the many groups racing to create a universal vaccine. What we try to do is really target a specific part of the virus, for, for instance, that we know is its Achilles heel. Now remember, viruses mutate all the time. So the trick is to find a stable part of the virus, a part that doesn't really change from one variant to the next, a common denominator. Saunders calls it a conserved site. Creating antibodies to that is one path to a universal vaccine. So typically that's a place where the virus is binding to a specific protein on the host cell that it's targeting. And if it changes that site, then it's no longer able to infect. A big clue came from someone who was infected with SARS all the way back in 2003. What is DH-1047? The antibody DH-1047 is is an antibody that we found from a SARS-CoV-1 infected individual. 17 years later, in 2020, in the midst of the current outbreak, 
they found DH-1047 was also protective against COVID, protective against a virus that didn't even exist when these antibodies were first made. And so we took that antibody as a template to say there must be some site that's common between SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2, and let's figure that out. Then we would know that needs to be in the vaccine. There are a number of pan-coronavirus vaccine strategies in the works. But unlike the mRNA vaccines we've come to know, at Duke, they're working on something called a nanoparticle vaccine. There's multiple sites that can be recognized by antibodies. Think of it like a soccer ball with tiny proteins stuck to the surface, each resembling a key conserved site of the virus's spike protein. So far in primates, the vaccine appears to work. And now, a similar vaccine developed by military scientists has already made it into early human trials. But as exciting as this science is, it's going to take time and patience. I don't want anyone to think that pan-coronavirus vaccines are literally around the corner in a month or two. It's going to take years to develop. Much of the work being done today on COVID is built on the back of similar research on other viruses, influenza, HIV, We've been working on an HIV vaccine now for almost 30 years uh, here at Duke. And HIV is one of the most rapidly evolving life forms on Earth. That's because HIV mutates much faster. And that's one reason why Dr. Barton Haynes thinks developing a universal vaccine for coronaviruses may be easier. Developing that platform for HIV over the last five years allowed this to happen when the need arose very quickly. The most challenging part is that the the virus is always changing. How do you predict what's coming in the future so that your vaccine can be effective against it? And he's not just talking about coronaviruses that are infecting humans right now, but also novel ones that could still spill over from animals. Ones we don't even know about yet. That's the type of vaccines we're going to need in order to prevent the next pandemic. Jake, it's just really fascinating science. And I got to tell you quickly, that particular antibody, DH1047, they found it was protective against SARS, also SARS-CoV-2, but even other bat coronaviruses. So it could be a really wide-ranging vaccine. We don't know how long it'll last, but the Duke researchers say they think it'll last, could last years as well. So you could have a long-standing vaccine that is widely, widely protective, Jake. Amazing. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Joining us to discuss... Dr. Vivek Morthy, he's the U.S. Surgeon General. Uh, Surgeon General Morthy, thanks so much for joining us. How confident are you that a universal coronavirus vaccine could help us prevent the next pandemic, could become a, a reality? Well, Jake, I think it's a very exciting possibility, and there's certainly a greater chance of it happening, you know, in this day and age than there was five or even ten years ago. Uh, and that's really because of the extraordinary advances in science that we've had. You know, the fact that we have, for example, even now, mRNA vaccines that we've, you know, vaccinated millions and millions of people with in a short period of time. That's a a really triumph of science. But one thing just to keep in mind, Jake, is that as exciting as the science is, not just for a pan-coronavirus vaccine, but also for combining a potential flu vaccine and a COVID vaccine to reduce the number of shots people get, as exciting as these possibilities are, the benefits of science can only be extended to people if they have accurate information about vaccines and about other products of science. And one of the worries I have is that if we're not simultaneously working on trying to root out misinformation and elevate and uplift accurate information and accurate messengers, uh, then I worry uh, that a lot of the benefits that may come in the years ahead just may not be accessible to people. 
What is a realistic timeline for when the first Americans could get one of the universal coronavirus vaccines should they be discovered? Well, I don't think that we're looking at something this calendar year. Uh, you know, it, it probably would take on the order of several years for something like that to be developed and then fully studied, tested, and then rolled out to the public. Just a few weeks ago, we were seeing um, rather insane lines of people waiting for hours to get COVID tests. Since then, the Biden administration has launched a program to send four free tests to each residence. Uh, would you say the testing issues have been resolved or they're just headed that way? Well, Jake, I think certainly that they're getting better and we're getting to be on the right track here. I think in addition to having, of course, the 20,000 locations where people can get tested, in addition to what you mentioned, which is the test kits that are now being mailed to millions of households around the country, some of them have actually already arrived. There are also, there's now a private insurance coverage that's required for eight tests per person per month, uh, another channel through which people can get tests. We know certainly as cases come down, that that may drop the demand for testing, but that's not going to make us let up uh, on the push to get more and more tests out there. We'd rather have too many uh, tests uh, than too few tests. And the goal is to have a test for anyone who needs it, anyone who wants it, readily available at low cost or no cost. You have been outspoken about the youth mental health crisis exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic. So many kids being forced to to stay home for so many months, denied the ability to to socialize, to learn in person. Now, now, a lot of kids are back in classrooms, which is great, but we do see school districts, such as the one in Flint, Michigan, uh, returning back to virtual learning. How much damage is that causing? And should the federal government be doing more to help these schools stay open safely, uh, sending more tests, uh, sending more vaccines, making it easier for parents to get their kids vaccinated? Well, Jake, this is a really important question, one that's near and dear to my heart, the mental health of our kids. And you and I are both fathers. Uh, you know, we, like all parents, care deeply about the well-being of our children. And one of the factors that's been important in the mental health of kids has been uh, the stability uh, in their lives. School is a big part of that. And so getting the vast, vast majority, 96% plus of kids back to school in the fall was a really important step. Now, one of the things that you know I've been saying for a few weeks now is that during this Omicron wave, uh, these are going to be tough weeks, and they're going to be emergency decisions that some, some schools are going to need to make on pulling back from in-person for a short period of time if they don't have the staffing, for example, uh, to keep the classrooms open. Our goal should be to make sure that these are as short as possible, and we're doing a lot to actually support schools. In addition to certainly providing a lot of the funding for testing, billions of dollars, in fact, for testing, for masks, and for other uh, precautions like improving ventilation, we are also offering a lot of technical assistance. We've doubled the number of tests uh, that are available to schools uh, right now. So we want to do everything we can uh, to support schools, but we also recognize, again, this wave is tough, and in some schools have had to make some tough temporary measures and decisions around pulling back. We just hope that that will be as short-lived as possible, because getting our kids back in school is extraordinarily important right now for their learning, but also for their mental health. Your administration also sent millions of N95 masks, the higher quality masks, to pharmacies and health centers across the country to be given out to Americans for free. If it is so important for us to be wearing these high quality masks, if cloth masks provide some protection, but really honestly very little comparatively, why doesn't the administration, why don't you come out and say to Americans, cloth masks don't work as effectively, stop wearing them, wear N95 and, and comparable masks only? So actually, Jake, I, I have said this, and uh, you know, I've said it on social media, I've said it uh, 
on TV. And I'll, let me say it again here, uh, especially given how transmissible Omicron is, wearing a high quality mask is very important, especially if you're at higher risk yourself uh, of medical, you know, if you have medical conditions that put you at higher risk of bad outcomes, uh, or if you're going to be in a circumstance like indoors for a long period of time with people who aren't wearing masks. What are high quality masks? Well, they include N95s, KN95s, KF94 masks. It doesn't mean that other masks aren't useful. Uh, we know that surgical masks offer some protection. We know that cloth masks, if they're well fitted, uh, they offer some protection as well. But the high quality masks are really the ones that are most important in this moment in time. It's one of the reasons why uh, the administration is sending 400 million masks out uh, and 95 masks out to community health centers, to pharmacies around the country. Some of those have arrived already. We're starting to hear that from, uh, from stores that have received them, and they're going to start distributing them to the public. So this is all part of the many layers of precaution that we need to protect ourselves, not just for against Omicron, but against potential waves that may come in the future. The former CDC director, Dr. Tom Frieden, uh, told CNN he thinks the Omicron flood will fade in a few weeks, and he uh, is has more optimistic now about putting this behind us uh, as he's been uh, th- at any time in this pandemic. Do you share his optimism that we're turning the corner? Well, I certainly share uh, the optimism that we're in a better place uh, now, and we will be in a better place in a few weeks. Uh, but I don't think that means that we should take our foot off the accelerator. Uh, one of the things that we've learned in the last two years, Jake, is that uh, we can't underestimate this virus. It's thrown curveballs at us in the past. There have been new variants. And we've got to be prepared for whatever comes, whether that's another variant of similar transmissibility or something that might potentially be worse. But what gives me uh, more optimism and hope, Jake, is the fact that we not only have uh, abundantly available vaccines, we not only see that they're working well to protect people against hospitalization and death, but we have more therapeutics, more oral and intravenous medicines now than in any other point during the pandemic. We need to increase our supply of that. And each month that follows, we're going to have more and more of that. These together, along with the targeted use of tests and masks, this is what I believe is going to help us get through future waves as well. U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Morthy, thank you so much. Appreciate your time, sir. Good to see you again. Coming up, a look at the potential confirmation battle the Biden Supreme Court pick will likely face. We'll talk about that with a member of the Senate committee that will hold the confirmation hearings. Then, breaking news, President Biden tells Ukraine to prepare for impact. New details from his phone call with Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer officially announced his plans to retire from the nation's highest court, giving Senate Democrats the opportunity to put President Biden's first justice on the bench. Biden has promised to nominate the first black woman to serve in that role. And so far, several names of esteemed jurists who fit that promise are being seriously considered, an informed source tells me, including D.C. Circuit Court Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, and South Carolina U.S. District Court Judge J. Michelle Childs. Let's discuss this all with Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Senator, thanks for joining us. The president said that he will listen to senators from both parties on their suggestions and advice. Have you heard from the White House about meeting with the president? Uh, Nothing about meeting with the president, Jake, but I deeply respect their willingness to reach out to us and seek our views. I know they're seeking views from a variety of jurists and experts and litigators. Uh, But, you know, I'd be remiss, Jake, if I failed to acknowledge, I think it's important that we really appreciate Justice Breyer's extraordinary service to our nation. You know, he was a 
thinker and a scholar on the court, still is, but one who knew how to fashion realistic solutions in a deeply divided court to try to bring the court together. And he also understood the real world consequences of seemingly very abstract decisions. And I'm hoping that President Biden will be consulting real people, so to speak. I believe that he'll be listening to them as well. And that's why he's going to take some time. But I think it's well warranted. Yeah, the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, uh, released a statement praising Breyer's optimism and profound love of country uh, and said he was a reliable antidote to dead air time at our lunches uh, and talked about uh, how much he enjoyed his company. But those three uh, jurists, the, the women, the, the justices, uh, would-be justices that I mentioned earlier, um, an informed source tells me uh, that they are, Kruger, uh, Jackson, and Childs are, are the top possibilities, although there are others being considered as well. House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn has been very open about who he hopes the president chooses. Take a listen. I want us to be thorough with this process. I want us to make sure that it is a black woman. I want to make sure uh, that it's a woman uh, that will get universal support. Uh, When I say universal, I mean bipartisan support. And I know that Michelle Childs will have support of several Republicans including the two Republican senators from South Carolina. That would be Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham. There are lots of reasons to uh, pick a a Supreme Court justice, but do you agree with Congressman Clyburn, Majority Whip Clyburn, that Judge J. Michelle Childs has the best chance at getting bipartisan support in the Senate? I think there are a variety of names, some of the mentions and some not, that have the potential for gaining bipartisan support. I look forward to a black woman as nominee making history in exactly the right way that we need it now and having a compelling life story and immensely impressive credentials that will garner bipartisan support. So I will say I'm prepared to fight if necessary and use all the options we have, but we should hope and work for bipartisan support. Uh, Your boss, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, says he wants to follow a similar accelerated timeline that Republicans used for Justice Amy Coney Barrett in 2020. She was confirmed, of course, one month after being nominated. Um, Was this timeline discussed uh, this afternoon uh, at the meeting that you had with your fellow Senate Judiciary Committee Democrats? How do you expect the process to play out? The meeting we had today was important, but it was uh, only the beginning, and it's the routine kind of meeting that we have at the beginning of major hearings and nominations. And we're comparing notes, we're preparing. I would say we all believe that it ought to be done as quickly as possible, expeditiously and swiftly, but fairly. And we're going to be prepared to fight ferociously if necessary and hope that Republicans will respect the country's wish that we have a Supreme Court justice as soon as possible. You know, I've argued cases in the Supreme Court, four of them, and a few before Justice Breyer, and I was a law clerk on the Supreme Court. I really hope that we can put the court above politics because the court's credibility has never been more threatened and its authority and independence has never been more at risk. Well, you said uh, that you wanted the nomination to proceed uh, as quickly as possible, as as well as fairly. 
I mean, we know that McConnell did it in a month from nomination to confirmation. So are you talking about a month from nomination to confirmation or uh, do you have a different deadline in mind? For example, Justice Breyer wants to stay until the end of the term, which is usually end of June. I think we need to do it quickly, as quickly as possible, swiftly, expeditiously. I don't have a magic number of days. There isn't any in the Senate rules or in statutes or the Constitution. We'll have a very strong vetting for whoever it is, and then hearings that will last a number of days, a committee vote. We're going to follow the normal procedures, but it will be done expeditiously. And I think that's what the country wants. I am very hopeful that the the battle, and you referred to it as a battle in the opening, will be really out of the kind of three battles that we've had, partisan battles, and that will have bipartisan support. Senator Richard Blumenthal, Democratic Connecticut, member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Thanks so much. Good to see you, sir. Breaking news. President Biden and Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, just wrapped up a key phone call. One side said it did not go well. The other side has a different take. That's next. We have breaking news for you in our world lead. A senior Ukrainian official tells CNN that today's phone call between President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, quote, did not go well. Our source tells CNN that the two disagreed about the immediacy of the threat of a Russian attack on Ukraine. The White House and Pentagon have been emphatic that they believe an attack could be imminent. We should note the White House just released its own readout of that call, and there was no mention of President Biden's warnings or the two presidents' disagreements. The White House did say Biden underscored America's commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty. CNN's Matthew Chance joins us now live from Kiev, Ukraine with more. Matthew, what more are you learning about this disagreement on the Biden-Zelensky call? How heated did it get? I'm not sure I could characterize how heated it got, but there was definitely a disagreement about the sort of level of risk that the country is facing uh, when it comes to a a Russian invasion. On the one hand, you've got President Biden. This is according to an official who briefed me on the the conversation that was had on the telephone call uh, this evening. On the one hand, President Biden saying the threat is imminent. I mean, we've heard this before. The Ukrainians pushing back on that, saying that the, uh, the threat, according to their intelligence analysts, is a bit more ambiguous than that. And it's a, it's possible that there won't be an invasion, whereas uh, President Biden apparently telling his Ukrainian counterpart that an invasion was virtually certain later on in February when the ground uh, becomes uh, uh, more frozen in this country. He went on to say that he, he warned the Ukrainian uh, leader that the capital, Kiev, this city here, uh, could be sacked. And that, that's, that's the word he apparently used, according to this uh, Ukrainian official, sacked by Russian forces, who he said may attempt to occupy it. There was also some some quite bad news uh, delivered, although expected news, I think, delivered uh, by the uh, US president to the Ukrainian side. President Biden, according to this official who, uh, who briefed me on the conversation, uh, saying uh, that he told the Ukrainian leader that Ukraine would not be getting significantly more military help, that there would be no U.S. troops sent to Ukraine to defend it. We already, we already knew that, of course, but it was reiterated again uh, on this phone call. 
Um, also, no sophisticated weapons, uh, further sophisticated weapons delivered to Ukraine from the United States. There would be no progress on NATO and there would be no sanctions imposed on Russia preemptively. That would only happen once Russia invades. Uh, let me just get this, this line out quite impactful, if you forgive me. Uh, President Biden telling his counterpart that Ukraine should prepare for impact. So quite a stark warning there from the U.S. leader. All right, Matthew Chance reporting live for us in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio. He's the new ranking Republican on the House Intelligence Committee. He also serves on the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, Congressman, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Congratulations on your new post. I want to start with you, the report you just heard from our correspondent in Kiev that the Biden-Zelensky call, according to the Ukrainians, did not go well. Ukraine will not be getting significantly more military aid than it's already received. And this real disagreement between Biden telling Zelensky, prepare for impact, and Zelensky insisting uh, that an attack from Russia is not imminent. Um, is, is Zelensky wrong? Is Biden wrong? What do you think? Well, let's hope that President Zelensky is, is correct. I mean, certainly everything that we have seen um, and what has certainly been publicly reported indicates that, that Russia is amassing huge and significant troop numbers, including weapons capability uh, that would give them the ability uh, to invade and, and to take Ukraine. One thing the administration's done correctly is they've made clear that there would be swift and very strong sanctions uh, on Putin and upon Russia uh, for doing so. But the other aspect of this is that um, the, the administration has been clear that they're not going to bargain away uh, the sovereignty of Ukraine, as Russia has made demands that were unreasonable, the administration stood up to those and said that you know they're not going to make uh, make statements uh, that would diminish Ukraine uh, as a country. If Russia invades it, uh, they will be facing, I think, a united uh, NATO allied front against them. So this senior Ukrainian official told CNN's Matthew Chance that President Biden warned Zelensky that Kiev itself could be sacked, that the Ukrainians need to prepare for impact, the Ukrainians obviously want the public in Ukraine to stay calm and not panic. Um, that's interesting that Biden is saying that Kiev could be sacked, his word, sacked, um, because some of, the, some of the predictions or some of the people talking about what Russia might do have been talking about how uh, Putin might take some of Ukraine, the Donbass region or whatever, but not a full-fledged full invasion uh, and toppling Kiev. Uh, do you think that that's actually on the table, the sacking of Kiev? Well, if you look at where Russia has uh, positioned their troops and the number of troops, that certainly is a preparation for a whole-scale invasion of, of Ukraine. Um, the, the problem, obviously, is, is that we have to find ways in which we deter Russia. Russia's, uh, you know, incorrectly stating that NATO is a threat. There is no threat from the defense alliance. Uh, this is totally a trumped-up uh, allegation that's coming from Russia as a pretext uh, for invasion. Um, certainly, it it would be um, if President Zelensky is right and Russia backs down again, that would be great. They have amassed troops on the border before and have left. We've never seen anything of this level and of this level of preparedness. Uh, so it would be incredibly unlikely to see no conflict. So you and many of your Republican colleagues uh, have called on the Biden administration uh, to be tougher on Russia. Um, to give Ukraine everything it needs to keep Russia out. Uh, some people calling for sanctions to be imposed on Russia and Putin now, even before an invasion. There is also uh, a wing of the Republican Party that's grown louder in, in recent years and recent weeks that seems to be actually vocally siding with Russia. Um, you pushed back against this argument 
back in November when you were on Fox. Let's just play some of that to, to remind our viewers. Who's got the energy reserves? Who's, who's the major player in world affairs? Who's the potential counterbalance against China, which is the actual threat? Why would we take Ukraine's side? Why wouldn't we on Russia's side? I, I don't, I'm totally confused. Well, clearly, Ukraine is a democracy. Uh, Russia is an authoritarian regime that is seeking to impose its will upon a validly elected democracy in Ukraine. And we're on the side of democracy. A few tweets from your, your uh, co- colleagues here. Congressman Thomas Massey, quote, the United States should not be involved in any future war in Ukraine. Congressman Paul Gosar, we have no dog in the Ukraine fight. What's your response to people out there who say, you know, why are we siding with Ukraine against Russia? Russia is the powerhouse and we need to be allied with, with Russia. We, we have no business defending Ukraine in any way. Well, Russia is amassing tanks on the border. Have you heard me say before, they're not showing up with ballot boxes and asking Ukrainians where they they want to go. We are for democracies. We're for the self-determination of of people's authoritarian regimes when they go and topple democracies uh, tend to not be satisfied with just one, as we've seen in history. Um, we, I think there's been a lot of disappointment that the administration has not worked more diligently to get advanced weaponry and stronger weapons into Ukraine that can either both act as a deterrence and raise the cost to Russia uh, if they invade Ukraine. But this debate about you know who should we be for is, is very, very disappointing. Uh, if you look at our foreign policy, if you look at our basic values as a democracy, it's fairly easy to understand that we don't support authoritarian regimes. We don't uh, support people using tanks to change uh, boundaries and we support democracies. And Ukraine is a well-known uh, ally with the United States. In addition to, you know, Russia had already entered into a memorandum uh, guaranteeing the sovereignty and integrity of Ukraine with the United States in Budapest, the Budapest memorandum, when Ukraine gave up nuclear weapons after the fall of the Soviet Union. That agreement really was a moral basis by which us to say, you know, Russia's violating that. We're certainly not for people violating uh, treaties. Where do you think this line of thinking comes from? Is it is it a remnant of the Trump administration? Is it a growing influence of a isolationist or libertarian movement? What, why are so many people in your party uh, sounding so unlike you? Is it is there, is it a remnant of uh, fatigue from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq? Well, it's certainly not coming from the remnants of the Trump administration. As you recall, the Obama administration had not sent uh, lethal weapons into Ukraine. Uh, President then Poroshenko of of Ukraine coming to the House floor and saying, you know, imploring, um, you know, our country to send lethal weapons. Trump administration did that. It sent javelins that are still there. This administration just sent javelins again. So, I, you know, there's a there's you know, some commonality between what the Trump administration was doing and the Biden administration with respect to making sure that there's there are weapons to at least and uh, um, de- defend Ukraine. But I, I do think that this is a this is a troubling debate that we're having. Uh, if we can't stand, you know, people look to the United States and look to Lady Liberty to, for the understanding that we stand for democracy. We're the light of freedom and liberty. And it, when we cease to be for that, um, <clears throat> then our own values are at risk. Congressman Mike Turner from Ohio, thank you so much. Good to see you again, sir. Coming up, gruesome new details about the violence one police officer went through on January 6th before he took his own life. Stay with us. A new video today describes in rather horrific detail what a D.C. police officer went through during the violent January 6th insurrection. Metropolitan Police Department officer Jeffrey Smith was a 12-year veteran of the D.C. force, just 35 years old. His body cam video, obtained by the Huffington Post, reportedly shows rioters tussling with him inside the Capitol. Then, 
As the attacks stretched into nightfall, the video shows a rioter throwing a metal pole at officers, striking the officer, Officer Smith, in the head. Nine days after the Capitol attack, Smith died by suicide. He shot himself with his service weapon. Let's bring in Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. She's on the Select House Committee investigating the January 6th attack. Congresswoman, uh, more than 730 people have been arrested in connection with the violent insurrection. Yet there are so many others that have not been charged, more than 1,000 others by some counts, including the rioters who attacked Officer Jeffrey Smith that day. Now, your committee is, is obviously not tasked with making arrests. That's the Justice Department. But you have insight into many of these cases. Given all the videos circulating for more than a year now, why do you think more arrests have not been made? Well, I don't know the answer to that, Jake. Uh, that's, you know, we're a legislative committee. That's a Department of Justice uh, matter. I, whether they are still making cases, whether, I, I don't know the answer. But obviously, when you see the video, the vicious uh, attacks on our officers, um, it's, you know, there needs to be full accountability in the criminal justice system. Meanwhile, the committee is working to uncover all the details, not only of the day, but of the events leading up to the day. Um, and uh, we're making good progress. So your committee scored a win uh, in your subpoena for emails from John Eastman. That's the conservative lawyer who worked for Trump and detailed in an insane memo, a wild plan for then, my, then Vice President Pence to throw out Biden electors on January 6th. Your committee was granted access to his emails related to the 2020 election. What do, you, what do you hope to learn? Well, you know, obviously he played a key role in um, this whole plot to overturn the election. So we want to know what he did. Uh, he said he was working at all times uh, for uh, former President Trump. We'd like to know more about that. Uh, you know, I just read the decision from the uh, court and Basically, uh, you know, he lost on every point. I mean, the, the judge said he failed to even make a prima facie case for some of his uh, allegations. So uh, the judge is uh, ordering uh, the parties to move quickly through this through the weekend so that we can get uh, this information as quickly as possible. We think it's important. We're showing video right now of Eastman speaking at the January 6th, Stop the Steal rally. There's so much of this that just played out in, in front of all of our eyes. Trump citing, citing uh, Eastman's argument. Trump saying that Pence needed to overturn the election. Trump saying to the crowd, let's go to the Capitol. We need to fight, et cetera, et cetera. What more are you hoping to find? Are you hoping to find a money trail that shows Trump okaying some sort of operation in which people start getting bust in? I mean, it seems like there's so much obvious uh, criminality that, that we all saw happen. Well, you know, a lot of this was done in public. Um, and I think there's a set of people uh, in the country say, well, if it's in pu public, maybe it wasn't wrong. Uh, but we're, we want to find the behind the scenes elements and see who was involved in the plot what was the were the intentions? I mean, this was clearly we know already not just some random event where people showed up randomly on the sixth of January. There were people who plotted it. People we've we've had interviews with Proud Boys. We've had interviews with many others in the Trump administration, and we need to get the full story, not only to lay out the picture, 
but also to inform ourselves for the legislative recommendations we're going to make. And um, that would include not only reform to the Electoral Count Act, but potentially the Insurre Insurrection Act, which the former president repeatedly throughout uh, the election year threatened to invoke without a cause and the like. So uh, we are moving quickly, and um, I think we're more than halfway through for sure. Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren from California, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Talk about tables being turned. Porn star Stormy Daniels taking the stand to testify against her own former attorney, Michael Avenatti. Stay with us. In the national lead, a rather stunning exchange is playing out in a federal court in Manhattan. Attorney Michael Avenatti has started the cross-examination of his former client, Stephanie Clifford, whom you might know by her stage name, Stormy Daniels. The adult film actress and director uh, paid hush money, that she was paid hush money to uh, says to, that um, she was paid hush money to not reveal that she had sex with Donald Trump shortly after Melania gave birth to Barron Trump. Daniels took the stand today, claiming that Avenatti cheated her out of $300,000 from a book deal. Prosecutors say he spent much of it on everything from hotels and plane tickets to leasing a Ferrari. CNN's Kara Scannell sat in on the trial. And Kara, Daniels was on the stand for roughly 10 minutes of cross-examination before court adjourned for the day. How much uh, did Avenatti get to cover in that time? Well, Jake, it was a brief and cordial exchange, although we don't know what to anticipate for tomorrow. But in Avenatti's brief questioning, he got kind of at the heart of this issue here. You know, the prosecutors say that Avenatti had stolen money from Story Daniels. He brought up the contract that they signed, which he was entitled, he said, to $100 payment and could deduct expenses from any money they raised online. There's a line in it that says that he could receive money from any book deal, a reasonable percentage, if it's agreed on by both sides. Now, Daniels had testified that there was no agreement for her to be for her to pay any money to Avenatti. She also said that he told her that he would not take a penny from her and called her an American hero. So Avenatti asked her if she had any text messages, any emails, any voicemails or recordings in which he said he would not take any money. She said she didn't. Then he shifted and went to attack her credibility. He asked her about some claims she has made that she can talk to the, the dead and that she has conversations with a haunted doll uh, named Susan. Now, Daniel said that, yes, this is someone that is, this doll is a character on a paranormal show that she's involved with, like a ghost hunter uh, show and called Spooky Babes, and that, that Susan talks to everyone. Uh, then it was pretty quickly after that that the court session was over. Uh, Avenatti has told the judge that he will cross-examine her for six hours. Now, the judge said that he could cut Avenatti off at any time. He said that sometimes less is more on cross-examination. Jake? Did you say spooky babes? Yes, I did. And she has an Instagram page, according to um, Stormy Daniels. Okay, interesting information. So Avenatti was her attorney. How, in her view, did he steal her money? Like, what was the way he did it? 
So she, the prosecution over their three hours of direct testimony had her walk through their whole relationship, how they met at the Waldorf Astoria in Beverly Hills and how they went on to sign this fee agreement. Uh, then, you know, she strikes this book deal and she says that she's entitled to get her advance $800,000 over four installments. And after she received the first one, she sent Avenatti wiring instructions to pass on to the publisher. She said she never got the second or third advance. She ultimately did get the second, but then she was emailing Avenatti and text messaging him on WhatsApp for five months asking, have you spoken to the publisher? Where's my money? You know, and what the prosecutors had already showed the jury was that Avenatti had set up an account in her name that he controlled and had told the publisher and the book agent to wire the money to that account. Stormy Daniels testified that she was unaware of any of that and only found out the truth when she finally got in touch with the publisher. That's when she cut off Avenatti. She said she felt betrayed and violated. Jake. I think the kids call that sus. Karis Canal, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Scientists say this space object is unlike anything they've ever seen before. The clues as to what it might be. That's next. A space mystery tops our out-of-this-world lead today. Astronomers say an unknown space object marked in these photos with the star icon is releasing giant bursts of energy every 18 minutes. The spinning celestial object beams out radiation about three times each hour. Scientists have an array of theories as to what it could be, including the, the remnants of a collapsed star or a dense neutron star. Researchers say they will continue to watch the object to see if it continues to turn on and off. And in the meantime, they're searching for evidence of similar space objects. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. You can catch up with our show if you miss it on podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Thanks for watching. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.